0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today we're breaking new ground with my first ever podcast about baseball. Now baseball is something that's very dear to my heart, it's one of my favourite sports and it has been ever since I first visited America as a you know small boy and came across baseball on television there. I just fell in love at first sight and it's something that I've always followed very passionately since then. I've been to grounds all across the both minor league, I've been to ballparks all across the continental United States, I've had an MLB.tv season pass since 2006 and a drawer full of jerseys <laughs> and a lifetime of just fabulous memories as a result of it and it's something that is, you know, I've made friends as a result of it at university and it's. And I was so absolutely excited when It was announced that there was going to be a couple of games in London and doubly excited when it came out that it was going to be the Red Sox against the Yankees. Now I'm an absolutely huge Red Sox fan and really this podcast is I suppose my way of trying to introduce it really to a British audience in that. I think one of the problems that they're going to have with this game is that the Red Sox and the Yankees are at the moment so evenly tied, they're both very young, both very talented. And I think with the dimensions that the Olympic Stadium is going to have, it's going to be similar to a um, spring training series that the Red Sox and the Dodgers played in the... um, sort of late two thousands when they did it at the LA Memorial Stadium. Now the problem was is that trying to convert the football stadium to a playable diamond meant that the left field was just ridiculously short. I mean I think Kevin Cash, who was the Red Sox backup catch at the time, that even as a result he was going to be a power hitter because of this you know, short porch and left. And I think, from what I've read, that some of the players who have been shown what the dimensions of the field were like seem to suggest something similar might be happening at the Olympic Stadium in London. So I think one of the problems is, is that it is trying to really sell the game and, it, and its rhythms to an audience who aren't going to be used to it. So in other words, There's very limited amounts of of, baseball coverage in mainstream British sports culture. So, if you get a situation where, let's say, it's a 15-14 slobber knocker, it's going to be very exciting for the fans and the casual viewers. But, in a way, it gives a, I suppose, misleading view of the actual game itself and how... a a baseball broadcast really works in terms of how, let's say if you compare it to Vin Scully doing the broadcast booth on his own for the LA Dodgers. I think one of the other things is really how you're going to sell it. I, I think with, you know, I'm a big NFL fan as well, And one of the things I suppose always I found frustrating, especially about the coverage of the Super Bowl, is when they would bring in sort of athletes from different sports, primarily football, and they would sort of talk about how they were interested in the game. And the thing is, is that all athletes are, you know, have that same quality of being able to appreciate other athletes, They always have a respect for your track and field stars, people who play different sports. You know, there's always a bit of a sort of a mutual appreciation in society. If you've been playing a team sport, and then you're dealing with someone that plays an individual, because it's completely, it's a you similar processes, training methods, but it's a different psychology and different thought processes. But they will always have that mutual respect. Yet at the same time, it's having the ability to, I think. Eloquently verbalise it, or to make some, or to make a comment about it that actually, you know, is more interesting and insightful to the general viewer. The point is, is that Rio Ferdinand, let's say, take Rio Ferdinand for instance, is a fantastic football pundit and is someone who does, you know, is very interested in American football. But you can't expect him to come in halfway through a Super Bowl that when he was at the stadium and come up with something, you know, brilliantly, you know, fantastically you know, witty off off the cuff. I, I don't think it was fair on him, and I don't think it was fair on the viewer at home, a lot of whom, you know, are, you know, they stayed up till two o'clock in the morning, they watch every single week, and they have a, you know, a knowledge that deserves more, I suppose, respect in that manner. And so, I think in some respects the, I think, key to really... A successful broadcast will really be about knowing the audience, in the sense that you're going to have people who are very passionate baseball fans, who will, like me, have things like MLB Top TV that would have gone on their holidays and watched baseball, and will have a kind of a deeper knowledge. You're also going to have people that are just watching just for the excitement of watching something new. And also, you know, if if you're gonna if it's gonna be on in bars and say you're gonna be having people, you know, let's say cricket fans is is probably a really interesting segment of your viewership. Because I mean, I played on cricket teams and I spoke to people who are very big cricket fans who are always very uh, mildly disdainful of baseball. And I think it's many different sort of factors. I think some people see it as. You know, an extension of American culture, other people just see it as being a lesser game to cricket. And I think really the way how I would sell it to a cricket audience is really to be, I think, you have to disarm cricket fans. I think you have to sit there and really say that these are very similar sports. You know, there's something beautiful in cricket and in baseball about how numbers can acquire the the form of language. So in other words, Don Bradman's average of ninety-nine point nine four. You know, that he goes into his final innings needing a handful of runs to average hundred for his career, and he gets LBW in the first over. You also have things like in baseball, you've got hitting four hundred, the Babe Ruth's record of 60 home runs you have Hank Aaron's 755 home runs all of these things have you know they're just numbers but they to the fan themselves they aren't they they acquire more than that and really if you look at how you know if you look at the the the, the sort of curmudgeonly element of people who talk about baseball especially in America and they would say that and the problem with the sport is is that it's all now just, you know, there's too many strikeouts. There's too many home runs. The ball doesn't get put enough in play. And yet, if you then look at sort of, you know, the curmudgeon in cricket's criticisms of the modern game, they'll say, well, that, you know, no one bats, the test match batting is a lot poorer, and that it's all all or nothing hitting from the, you know, T20s. There's, you know, either dot balls or sixes then there's no middle ground, there's no rotating the strike. You know, the baseball curmudgeon will criticize that fielders aren't you know, ball isn't in play as much, so fielders, so you miss things such as the stolen base, the well turned double play. And all of these things are just is that you almost have to say it, you almost have to verbalise it and to say, well, you know, both of these sports are so utterly dependent on their history and their senses of tradition. So, you always have the lunch break, you have the ringing of the bell at Lord's five minutes before play. In baseball, you have take me out to the ball game, the seventh inning stretch, all of these little bits and pieces, the exchanging of the lineup cards, all of these little bits and pieces that, and you need to almost say it to them. You need to almost literally, it's almost as if you want to have a monologue and say, These are the reasons that both of these sports are very similar. They're kissing cousins in regards. You know, the the knuckleball has transferred over from baseball into the armoury of a bowler in cricket. You have the, you know, even in a way of bringing the actual game itself to life to the fans. In other words, you know, you don't have to necessarily sell the current New York Yankees you know you have Aaron Judge you have Mike's St- you know you have Giancarlo Stanton you know you have all of these younger players global torres that have come through and Jar. you you have and they have the cachet of the, you know the New York Yankees the iconic cap they play at yankee stadium that that's the easy bit that's a bit that almost in a way needs to be unsaid to a regard. You know, with the Red Sox, you've got the history, you know, the curse of the band, but you, you've got all of these little bits and pieces. But really, I think if you want to capture people's imagination, you almost have to put it in a way that they can understand what the underlying issues in the game. Because at the moment, you, you've reached a stage where the last two or three seasons have seen a phenomenal rise in strikeouts. You've seen a rise in home runs. You've seen the rise in hundred mile an hour relievers and how that is fundamentally altering the game. And that's no more different than the changes that have come across in cricket, in Test matches, in the sense of batting. You have more batting collapses. And there's more of a sense that, you know, previously, you know, chasing down three hundred in the fourth innings was considered a huge thing to do. Even as sort of late as the remember going to Laws to watch England try and chase 280, and that was considered a huge total, and yet they did it quite easily, and these days, you, you know, 350, 400, even in county, you've had some situations where teams have, you know, chased down more than 400, and that's the changes that are made, and I think when people get that understanding, in other words, really, you you just have to, I suppose, lay down the absolute basics, so really, you need to know that the home team bats last they have the top half of the inning which is the road team bottom half of the inning is the home team so that the home team bats last in the bottom of the ninth it's nine innings three outs in a half inning three you know four balls for a walk three for a strikeout once and that you know it's you just want to get one more run than the oppo i think once you've outlined that basic detail And really what you want people to do is just to follow the game, but also pick it up for themselves. If you explain too much, eventually, you know, it it allows people firstly to confuse themselves. And the more confused they get, the more likely they are just simply to give up on the whole enterprise and switch off the TV or switch over. So what you almost need to do is you need to say, well, there's been huge changes in the game in the last two or three years. That baseball is constantly evolving sport that you have the late 60s where you, know, you had you know the year of the pitcher and how eventually that lead led to the lowering of the mound and the bringing in the designated hitter rule because and the, that then leads you in a sort of natural discussion you can say well the american league decided that they wanted the designated hitter and so that there's more offense especially in the bottom half of the Batting orders, whereby the National League, you know, has the older league has a more historical presence, and so as a result, they decided to keep the des- they keep, you know, keep the pitcher hitting. So as a result, you know, the bottom half of the lineups aren't as powerful. They don't score as many runs, but it's a more tactical game, and that the fans in National League cities appreciate it, even though the pitchers, you know, historically haven't hit particularly well. Things like double switches, use of the bench, and creates a, a different sort of challenge. You know, I would suspect that probably, you'll, you know, fingers crossed touch wood, that you're going to get a couple of the, you know, better pitchers that will, you know, be. Out there in the Olympic Stadium on the mound, and so if if it is Chris Sale, for example, you can say that you know Chris Sale is a bit of an outlier in the modern game, in the sense that he does you know go two hundred plus innings a year, and that you know if it was he had his druthers... that he would love to go seven, eight, nine innings, and that he's a throwback to the days when you did have starters that would go eight, nine, you know complete games were a lot more currency, and that the starters and that they not just that they t- ate so many innings and that they were so good is that they be- they took on a cultural thing you have to stop at the person that comes on after your team loses and gets you the win and that they became you know a huge part of the game's culture and heritage the idea that the ace starts the opening day and that's a un- that's a way of basically Painting a story for the fan to understand the culture, the heritage of it. And that you know, with the decline of starting pitching, whereby they're only going once, twice, and they don't want to go three times through the order because of, you know, the rise in technology. And that, you know, we now have analytics that say really going through the third time in the lineup that generally you know leads to more runs and a fresh reliever coming on you know is is a better outcome what you can then do is you can then in effect bring in things like moneyball because people know what moneyball is it's been mentioned so often in you know british school, sporting culture specifically more in football and to an extent cricket but that's you know and people know the movie with Brad Pitt and then you can bring in Billy B. Well, what you can also say is is that you've then it then creates the sort of unexpected unintended consequence that as a result the game is far more optimized in terms of strategy. But then you lose out on some of the more exciting elements of the sport. So things like the hit and run, stolen bases, you know, the double play, and as a result, that while the game you could argue is better played in terms of you know winning and losing at the same time you you've almost not quite lost something but the game has a different character and it may not be quite as exciting in other words that the people who originally started arguing in the 90s people like you know the fire joe morgan people what they saw was is that baseball was an inefficient sport but as a result it is now a far more efficient sport but it's also not maybe quite as exciting. But then what you can say is, is that you've now got these fantastic relievers who are now, you know, like uh, Jordan Hicks, he's throwing the ball 105 miles an hour. It's not only just that it's 105 miles an hour, it's that it's 105 miles an hour with pr- laser-guided precision. You've then great, created a situation where people are now changing their strategy, is that you now have Shoshitani. You know, who is, you know, just an amazing character in the sense that he's just come out of Japan. He, you know, he didn't have a particularly fantastic spring training. And yet when the games start, he's someone that can hit home runs. He can, you know, his batting average has been good. He's also come on and been a fantastic starter. And so now suddenly, you know, with a new brand of managers who are far more in line with their players so in other words you and that's where you can bring in you know characters like O Weaver who is a fantastic tactician but he's not necessarily a players manager in that regards he was someone who was quite brusque but he was a master strategist whereby now you have managers who are far younger they don't they haven't gone through the minor leagues in a way that you know a previous generations of Managers have done, which means maybe in a strategic sense they're not quite as sharp as a Billy Bean or a sorry, Billy Martin, even but at the same time, is that they can understand their players, and you can then bring in people like Joe Madden and the result the fantastic sort of results he's got at with the Chicago Cubs. You can bring in people like Terry Francona at, at, at all points. What you're trying to do is to try and make these people real. So in other words if you're going to talk about Alex Corey you can say that the additional things that you know he was um you know reserve infielder for the Red Sox he had you know a, a decent career and that really his success has been you know with the Astros as a bench coach and now he's returned to the Red Sox and all of the positives he's done in terms of changing there hitting philosophy and the impact that that's had on people like Mookie Betts, Andrew Benintendi. But the underlying principle is, is that if you want to to make the game a living, breathing sort of entity that can really... You need to deal with all different parts of, of the game, really. You're looking to explain Things like, you know, sort of technology. For example, you know, the the impact that radio had. I mean, KMOX is a fantastic example. If you can bring that into a a broadcast and really explain how, you know, baseball on the radio, especially to multiple states at the same time and how much of an influence that had and why, you know, the, the Cardinals are so popular outside of, you know, the St. Louis area and Missouri as a whole. Because for generations, baseball, real-life baseball, was listening to, you know, KMOX in wherever you were in the Midwest and the West. Is that driving in your car... And that you then explain the cultural significance of baseball in the the ideas of, you know, the super super radio stations in the 20s and 30s. ...match what was going on in real life... ...is that there were people moving east, going to west... ...because of, you know, their jobs... ...especially with things like World War Two. ...you can then even bring in sort of cultural references... ...from things like literature... ...you know, Hunter S. Thompson does a fantastic sort of point... ...where it's about a traditional character that, you know... An, ...a nerdy well family that, you know, are based in the south... ...and, you know, over generations they move further and further west... Until they hit, you know, the Pacific. At which point, there is nowhere further else to go. They, you know, you've reached the, you know, end. You, you know, effectively your own personal manifest destiny. There is nowhere else further west that you can go. But what you're really saying is, is that that generation of people, while they were making these kind of trips, like them, you know, they were listening to, you know, baseball on the radio, and how that, you know, played a, a huge role. It's like, if you want to explain, you know, the cultural significance of Mickey Mantle, it's that Babe Ruth is this hugely, it's an amazing character. He's almost like, if, if Babe Ruth didn't exist, someone would have had to have written about Babe Ruth, or created a character with that kind of, you know, elan. I mean, he is just an amazing story. If you want to tell a baseball story, you start with Babe Ruth. You start with this kid that was basically just a massively difficult kid I mean he was drinking out of his you know the regulars at his father's saloons you know dregs you know as a child and eventually the family just do not have the energy or even the ability to control him so they send him off to a reform school and they don't really even to be fair bother to visit him that much when afterwards and that he then grows into this fantastic baseball pitcher who goes to the Red Sox, who at that time had won, you know, three or four World Series, who were the dominant team in baseball of that era, and he sets a record for them, you know, most scoreless innings as a pitcher, and that you know would have had you know, would have been definitely in the argument to be one of the best, if not the best, left-hander in baseball in terms of pitching. Who, you know, had he never picked up a bat, had he never even got a single would have, you know, almost certainly got into the Hall of Fame. And yet he then, you know, leads this rise of, you know, the end of Dead Ball. You know, you have a livelier ball. You know, you have new and then you have home runs. And he obliterates the home runs. And that completely changes baseball. At which point he decides that he doesn't want to pitch and that his, you know behaviour You know, that he was so difficult, that he was out, you know, drinking every single night, that he was having affairs all over the place, and that, you know, gambling and all the rest of it, which then leads, you know, really to the Red Sox running out of patience, and, you know, just basically selling him to the Yankees, and how that has a huge visceral effect on creating the next great baseball team. Yeah, the Yankees, which, which sort of culminates in the, you know, 1927 Murderous Roe and the, the difference of personalities between him and Lou Gehrig. You know, Babe Ruth is this very gregarious, you know lovable Roe kind of figure who is beloved across America and becomes probably the the first major, almost in effect, global sporting superstar. And then you have Gehrig next to him, who's, you know, far more an austere personality, you know, very much a, a mother's boy, who does, you know, who is a college graduate, and how they, the sort of interplay of their, you know, history together as Yankees, and the the tragedy of, you know, him getting AC, ALS, and how, you know, they've renamed it Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, then you, you can then bring in, you know... I'm the luckiest guy alive speech. You can then bring in you know, people like, you know, Joe DiMaggio. You can then bring in that he married Marilyn Monroe. But then what you need to also bring in is not just that is that he had the, the hitting streak. Now, the 56-game hitting streak is interesting. And people would, you know, understand naturally that, oh 56, that sounds impressive. But it... You need to give it more than that. you need to say that how the difficulty of the travel so they were spending time on trains, overnight trains, you had day games in a 100 degree heat, and then night games and that you know for 56 straight games, you know having a hit, you know and then that's against lefties that's against righties, junk ball pitchers, you know fastball pitches, you know that there was no one that beat him. That no one in those 56 nights had it in that you know no there was no one who hit had like a no hitter or something of that nature and that even after it gets broken and snapped by Lou Paret and the, the Cleveland Indians that he then goes on another you know, 40 game hitting streak that really for an extended period of time for literally almost you're almost saying 89 games out of 90 well over half a season that he was in that good form that if you actually break down the numbers of it is that most of the time he was getting hits in you know his first or second time at bat and how the nights when he didn't, how the pressure would grow, and how important it was, you know, in the, the time period in American history where you know you wouldn't, you know, on the verge of, you know, America entering World War II and how the pressure grew in the sense that it was basically on the front page of every single newspaper. It was in every single news broadcast that you would see at the movie theatres. It was on the front page of every newspaper. It was just across the entire continental United States. The first thing even non baseball fans were doing, the first thing they were saying is, Did he get a hit? And how that played a huge sort of role. And then you can then almost bring in Mantle and Maris. And you know, how the pressure of you know, going for Babe Ruth's, you know, home run record, and how the impact had on Maris, because he was a character who, as a person, was a, you know, Midwesterner. He wasn't particularly, you know, media savvy. And how Mickey Mantle was a completely different, more outgoing character. And how, you know, the, the cultural significance of why Mickey Mantle was so beloved is that he was just the, I suppose... He again, he's a bit like a roof in that if you didn't if there wasn't a Mickey Mantle, someone would have had to have created him. You know, he's six foot four, he's blonde, he's good looking, he is charming, he can he's a fantastic outfielder, he can run. He's a switch hitter, he can hit with both, you know, left and right hand with power. And you know he then ends up on the greatest team of all, the Yankees, playing at Yankee Stadium, and that he replaces another idol in the Yankee Clipper, in Joe DiMaggio, and that the the element of tragedy behind it in the you know the injury that he gets because he was pulling up for a you know, fly ball because the idea was that they didn't want to offend DiMaggio in letting him know that his replacement was essentially sitting across the. Outfield in right field. And that, as a, and that his own demons... That his belief that he was going to die young... And so as a result because of that fear... That he then led a, a devil may care, reckless kind of life, but also the fact that he was in New York and in the 50s when the Yankees were brilliant and winning it every single year, and that you had the, the New York Giants, you had the Brooklyn Dodgers, and that it was just the center of the baseball universe was in New York. You know, at the time when you obviously had the things like the rise of television, in that Babe Roof basically sticks out as a, a cultural image, but Mickey Mantle steps out. He was on television. People could see for the first time just how good he was, and as a result, his popularity, you know, spread across America in a slightly different way to that of DiMaggio and Babe Ruth. And how you know his backstory that he comes out of this tiny little town, Commerce, Oklahoma. You can even bring in you know his dad, Mutt Mantle, uh, sorry, Mutt Mantle. And how, you know, when Mantle's in the minor leagues in Kansas City and he's going for a real crisis of confidence, he calls up his dad and says, I just don't think I can do this. I don't think I can break into the big leagues. And that Mutt immediately just drops what he's doing, gets in the car, drives all through the night to Kansas City, and then says, Okay, if you're not gonna do it, then, you know, we're gonna pack up your stuff, we're gonna go drive straight back to Commerce Oklahoma and you can work down the mines with me and how that kind of interplay and how, you know, the sort of iconism of someone, you know, who'd come out from, you know, rural America to then dominate at the big league level. Even the sort of the I suppose, telling the story about how he first came to New York. He's, you know, with a $5 canvas suitcase and, you know, an ill-fitting suit and how, you know, one of the... the and that, that's almost the experience that every single player gets when they get to the big leagues. That you go from retro America, you go from these small towns in the Midwest or in New England or, you know, out West, and that you then... Go into a major city. You go literally, physically, and emotionally into the big leagues, and that you know it's there where the the veterans will help ha- you know, help pick you out a suit and those sort of things that maybe if you've just got a commentator who will just will tell you the balls and strikes. They'll tell you that Mookie Betts started out as a second baseman, but you, you really at the same time need to tell baseball as the story of america. If you're going to talk about, you know, Jackie Robinson, you you can talk about how, you know, you can talk about the Negro Leagues and how, you know, you know, you've got enough people that would have seen, you know, who would have seen the movie 42 and that how you can then build upon that. You can explain that Jackie Robinson in no way shape or form was the best baseball player in the Negro Leagues and that his It was maybe his fourth best sport. He he was certainly a better football player. He was certainly a better basketball player. You know, his athletics in college and several different events as well. And that he really only played a handful of games for the college baseball team and was atrocious. I believe he went something either 1 for 18 or 0 for 18. And how really the importance of the time was that baseball was where he could make some money in other words that the professional football leagues weren't particularly popular a lot of the time they were taking on baseball teams names as a way of boosting their own sort of nascent you know popularity and how obviously if you wanted to go to the olympics the issue that you would have would be that you'd have to remain an amateur and really, by going using the fame that he'd got from his court case in regards to his court martial when he was in the military, and it was in Texas, he refused to go to the back of the bus, and the popularity that he had within the black newspapers as this hero from UCLA, who'd also been done fantastically well in the army and stood up to the you know racism of the Deep South, and then utilised that to then get into the. You know negro leagues and was then picked by branch ricky it's all of those elements that if you marry up with really the, the what the, the rhythm of the game in terms of you know being a, a fan and that really it, it's how it enters your life as a personal thing so that you really have you know the dark days of winter where you're looking at you know free agents who you're going to sign just before christmas and that, you know, as the, you know, you have the, you then, the first elements of spring in February when, you know, pitches and catchers report. And as, you know, and how spring training has an influence in the sense that, you know, the older fans that go to, you know, down south to watch, you know, in Arizona and in Florida, in particular Florida, is almost reminiscent of cricket fans at Outgrounds. In other words, they're watching, you know, minor leaguers whose names aren't on the back of their jerseys, who are just desperate to make the teams, and now watching it at the same stadiums where, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, Babe Ruth would have been doing exactly the same thing for their spring training. It's that kind of history that I think you can add to the, the broadcast. And it's almost, in a way, fantastic that you have teams like the Red Sox and the Yankees, because they have such an intertwined history. If you look at, obviously, the selling of Babe Ruth, you can talk about the curse of the Bambino, no, 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 no. Even if it isn't technically true, the cultural importance of it and how it seeped into popular culture. And how it affected, you know, how New York Yankee fans used to shout 1918 over and over again. And how that played into the 2003 ALCS and the 2004 ALCS. You can talk about how Babe Ruth and the importance of the fact that they know, that Yankee Stadium was known as the house that Ruth built. That, you know, when you look at Mantle and Marish playing in the outfield and chasing the ghost of Babe Ruth in terms of that, the you know the home run record, and that the actual outfield was a mon a living monument to the the Yankees and to those fantastic teams. Let's say you know the Murderers' Road, Joe DiMaggio, is that literally their monuments were actually out there in the outfield. Of course, they were not eventually moved into monument park, but just the physical image of literally, you know, Mickey Mantle having to run around the the monument to pay proof to catch the ball. And how important that would have been, it's, it's finding ways to get people interested in the history, and so that the Red Sox aren't just two big teams fighting in these, you know, in this two-game series. You can talk about I think one of my favourite literature bits of baseball is the John Uptight story. How he was at a um, girlfriend's house and just almost sort of spur of the moment decided to go down to Fenway to watch. Ted Williams' last home game and eventually became the last game of his career. He decided to skip the last um, six days of the season and a road trip to New York so that he could go down to Florida to start fishing. And that he then writes this beautiful article about it because Ted Williams hits a home run with his final at-bat and the Fenway Park crowd go absolutely bananas and you know, that they want him to do a curtain call and he refuses and that the next time that Ted Williams does a curtain call at Fenway Park is in the 1999 All-Star game and he's on this golf cart that gets driven in from the ballpen and how all of these All-Stars you know, surround him in just pure veneration and how the crowd, you know, react to him, you know, in this just wonderfully touching moment of this you know, aged man you know giving this you know important salute and really you know squaring the circle you know because in the 99 all-star game you were really dealing with not just it was the all-star game at Fenway you were dealing with the you know deciding things like the you know team of the the millennium you were that kind of cultural impasse that moment of which You know, obviously, we knew it wasn't going to last, you know, within a couple of years, Ted Williams had passed away, and the the importance of it, and how, you know, in the John Uptight thing, you know, gods don't answer letters. And I think you can then bring in the movies, you know, like the Kevin Costner trilogy, you know, Love of the Game, Ball Durham, Field of Dreams, as a way of getting people to look it up after the game. To say, okay, if you think that John Updike thing was it, why do not you read it? And it's that kind of way how you can get people not just interested in the action on the field. Which should really sell itself. They're two, as I said, two fantastic teams. But then it's a way of really giving you a wider understanding of where baseball sits in terms of American history. And that, you know, instead of people sitting there thinking, oh, well, it's just, you know, what's the most common thing that... You know, British people say about baseball, oh, they call it the World Series, and yet it's, you know, only teams in America. And it's a way of changing that to see the the positivity and the the wonderful things that baseball has done and how you can get these characters, these long-dead characters, to become real to people. I think the classic one is Steinbrenner. And you can say that, you know... Is that I I think one of my favourite things that anyone's ever said to me who was British about baseball was that they didn't is that they didn't understand that Steinbrenner in in Seinfeld was actually a based on a real person. They just thought the person was just a fictional character and how the importance that he had in terms of the both the controversy in terms of you know firing managers you know getting rid of minor league stars and always signing these big names and how you know in with the let's say ladies and gentlemen the bronx is burning how you can bring that into it but you can also say how in the end it became a a negative is that actually it's when he's banned from baseball that the you know the next great Yankee dynasty is sort of built out of the ruins from that. But also when he bought the Yankees, that as a kid growing up in Cleveland, he used to go down to the hotel where the Yankees stayed just so that he could see a glimpse of the players and a glimpse of their luggage. That was how important the Yankees were to America. And... And I think one of my favourite stories that really represents that is the George Brett Pintar incident. Because really the the history between the Yankees and Kansas City, that's a fantastic story in of itself. Is that you get the is that Kansas City originally was a minor league franchise of the Yankees and even when they did become get a major league franchise of their own, is that they often dealt their best players to the Yankees, usually in lopsided trades that never particularly benefited Kansas City, but always benefited New York. New York always got the better end of uh, any kind of deal between the teams. And so that by the time you get to the, the late 70s and the early 80s, that you get a great Kansas City side. They're built off of the idea of, of athleticism. They are a... A completely different mindset to the Yankee teams that were built by Steinbrenner where you had you know Reggie Jackson and eventually you get this the pintar game whereby Billy Martin the Yankees manager this yeah you know, fascinating character in of him in of himself has worked out that George Brett has far too much Pintar on his back it's a minor rules violation but it's a rule violation nonetheless but he just keeps a hold of it. He doesn't say anything and he waits until George Brett has hit this home run, this key, you know, go ahead home run in the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium, and he goes out to the umpire and demands that they examine the bat. The umpire you know, looks at the bat and realises, yep, they George Brett has inadvertently broken the rule and, you know, the home run is disallowed and and just the moment of which George Brett just steams out of the Royals' dugout, and that the the umpire was Tim Tawful, who was a really big guy, which made it as just an actual televisual moment, it was gold, is that George Brett showed every single bit of frustration that anyone has ever had in baseball at the New York Yankees, the Yankees that always win, the Yankees that always seem to luck in to the next great talent, that you have the core for. And all of these are the bits and pieces that they always have spent the most amount of money, that they always seem to get that kind of rub of the green, and that, you know, you have the sort of arrogance and the bonhomie of, the, you know, the Steinbrenner years. And that's a way how you can then sort of almost... Cr- Sell what the rivalry is and how, you know, for Boston, it's not just a rivalry between two teams. It's a rivalry built out of the frustration that, you know, Boston has that, in effect, you know, New York surpassed it historically. And, you know, originally, you know, in terms of the you know, colonial America, Boston was the, the hub, the centre. And that eventually it's been surpassed culturally by New York City. And how that's had a sort of impact that, uh, made something like the creation of the idea that there was a curse of the Bambino, that that's how important it was, and how, it still, it, in, it still inflects the rivalry even now. I think what I want to do, really, to sort of bring this podcast to a, a close, is really, is that I want people in this country to see baseball like I do. That it's this wonderful, living, breathing sport, and that it has heroes, it has villains, it has you know all manner of different people and how they add to it. How the global game has added to it. You know, you you could spend easily three or four minutes talking about the cultural impact of Ichiro, Shoshitani and how you know the the role that baseball played in the reconstruction of Japan after the end of the Second World War you can talk about how Babe Ruth went out there you know in the 20s and 30s how he was struck out by a fantastic female pitcher on three pitches and that she then st- struck out Lou Gehrig you can talk about the Caribbean series you can talk about people like Roberto Clemente and you know the 3000 hits that he got And then on the last day of the season, and then, you know, dying in a tragic plane accident, going out to Nicaragua to deliver supplies after an earthquake. It's, you can talk about the, you can talk about the cultural significance of the all-American women's baseball team the league of the you know the 1940s during world war ii and how you know uh, the, the movie a league of their own where where that's come from it, it's a way of not just making it two games that could just you know that could be blowouts that could be laughers and making it so that people will then maybe go and buy that movie or watch that movie and then fall in love in a way that you know, I do, and all the other people that the 55,000 people that will be there on day one, the 55,000 people on the second night, the way how we feel about it. Thank you for listening.